This morning I have a question for us. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. And maybe for a different generation, why does love always feel like a battlefield? A battlefield. A battlefield. It's a crazy little thing called love, isn't it? This past week, it was Valentine's Day. Our world talked and dreamed and wished and sang a whole awful lot about love, didn't they? From all sorts of directions. And so I think it's with some perhaps sovereign humor that we find ourselves today in John chapter 15. Would you join me there? John chapter 15 verse 12. And in John 15 verse 12, we hear Jesus say this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone laid down his life for his friends. Do we remember the background of where we're at in this moment? Jesus, we've been listening into Jesus' conversation in an upper room where he is pouring out his heart to prepare his disciples. Already he's been building up these themes that we're going to see today about keeping his commandments and about loving God and loving others. He's revealed layer after layer through his ministry and then especially now in this upper room on these concepts. I I really want to just... Bring us up to speed quickly the way God has been tracing this theme through Jesus and his ministry to this point. It was back in Mark 12 when he was asked, which commandment, teacher, is most important of all? To which Jesus replied, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So then we saw Jesus say in John chapter 13 that a new commandment he gave to us, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in saying new, remember we said he wasn't saying this is novel. Of course, this is a a summarization of what had been from the beginning. It was enriched. It was given an example in God in flesh with them and for them. And then in John 14, Jesus said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, obeying commandments here, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then just a few weeks ago in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do we see that Jesus has just had one thing to say over and over and over again throughout his ministry here? John, in writing this this gospel that we're reading 
also wrote an epistle. We've referenced it many times here in this series, and he summarized it this way. This is the commandment of Jesus. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So, this is the picture we have. Believe, keep the commandment, and love him and each other. There's a sequence here we've been observing and building on over the past months. The sequence is this. The ultimate command is to believe in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the command that we must keep to have life with him. Obeying Jesus' commands is the result of loving him. Obedience is the result of loving him. And then the definitive response of faith is to love others. That is the background of what we've arrived at this morning. And really, it's going to be what we continue to rehash here this morning. Because where Jesus said something an infinite number of times, it seems like those are good guides for what we should spend a lot of time talking about. So to a group that he was just telling to abide in him, to abide in him like a branch on a vine, in his word and in his love, Jesus then turns his attention and says this to his 11 now disciples in the upper room. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. We see today, first... And there will be many aspects with this. But we'll see first that love for others describes what it means to be in the love of Jesus. Love for others describes what it is to be in the love of Jesus. Essentially, if you're a Christian, Jesus says, you love others. If you're a Christian, you love others. It's fascinating to me that in the last moments and hours of Jesus' life, as he turns his disciples to each other, he reveals a lot of knowledge, and he will reveal through the Spirit a lot of knowledge. But in this moment, what he chooses to say in person and in the flesh to his disciples is not a special set of doctrinal principles, though that truth matters to Jesus. He reveals a set of behaviors towards each other that mirrors the love they have in him. Out of the love of Jesus abiding in us, as we abide in him and the gospel continues to, to, to define who we are, we love others. In fact, we are ordered, it's the commandment to love others. Now, after Valentine's week, I, I have to admit, there seems to be a gap in our understanding of love here, right? And the love that we have in in our concepts, can true love be commanded? Can, can Jesus really command us to love other people, right? Like all these songs and all these movies, we, we are prone to think love is something we fall into, not something you're commanded into. But God-like love is most basically not a feeling, it is an action, Love for one another is not a feeling we might experience in the community of God. It's a choice that Jesus commands Christians to make. 
And this is a definition we've been using here in this series, uh, our Paul Tripp's words. It's this, love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. It's a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. And I get it, commonly love for others might even look like laying your life down like Jesus is sharing here. I will lay my life down for you to have access. But where our commonly culture thinks is, man, I'll lay down my life for you to have access to what you think is good. I want you to be able to do what's right for you. That's usually how we understand love in our cultural environment, in our cultural moment. But godly love for others is, is this idea that I will lay down my life for you to have access to what God knows is best for you. And our passage repeats the example for our love. Jesus said it, this is my commandment that you love one another. Here's the example, here's the definition, as I, Jesus, have loved you. Jesus has been doing everything with his disciples to the glory of God and to help them know and trust him. He had done it with kindness and compassion. He had been truthful and gracious. He had served them. He had shown them love. And then he teases out what he will go on to do in verse 13 by saying, Greater love has no one than this than that someone lays down his life for his friends. Clearly, Jesus is foreshadowing him laying down his life on the cross. His love is the greatest expression of love. There's no greater worth humbling itself to no greater depths. He's the greatest one performing the greatest act of service. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, perhaps it should clear something up here. This comparison of greater and greatest love is not in, comp in competition to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul later is going to go on to write, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You might think of that person as a friend, someone who's good, someone who's worthwhile to you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still rebels to God, you might think of this as being unfriends with someone. Paul seems to drop this comparison here that the greatest love is dying for an enemy. This verse is so well-loved, it kind of frames our thinking, even though Paul write it, wrote it by inspiration of the Spirit sequentially later than this moment where Jesus is with his disciples. It's hardwired into our brains, I think, to know that dying for an enemy would be a greater expression of love than dying for a friend. So is Jesus somehow wrong in saying that greater love is no one than this than you lay down your life for a friend? Shouldn't we say greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for an enemy? We get confused when we allow Paul's framing of the scenario to kind of control how we read Jesus' comparison. But Jesus wasn't using the same frame 
for comparison as Paul was. Jesus isn't showcasing the object to whom we show love, the enemy or the friend. That's not what Jesus is trying to tease out here. He's showcasing the extent to how you show love, no matter to whom you show it. Laying down your life versus any lesser sign and symbol of love. That's what Jesus is showcasing. He's showcasing the extent of how you show love, not the object to whom you show love. Essentially, maybe we could think of it this way. Greater love than bringing someone a meal, greater love than showing up and helping them in their moment of need or or praying for them, greater love is laying down your life for them. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, all the way to the extent of giving up your very life. Love for others describes what it means to be in the love of Jesus. John, who's recording this conversation for us, so impressed by the words of Jesus here in writing to the church, says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, as I have loved you, we hear here, if God has so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Love for others describes what it means to be in the love of Jesus. Let's let's break that down just a little bit into some specifics for us this morning. The assumption here is that we're in the love of Jesus, that we know him as our Savior and And so the first thing we have to stop at before we move on, before we assume that everyone agrees with this, is this. You have been loved by God. You have been loved by God. Do you know that? Do you know that you've been loved by God? I recognize there's a As many people are in the room today right now, there are that many experiences of life. Some of those experiences right now and historically have been easier or harder than others. Some of us are pre-wired by a lot of circumstances to think about God in some specific ways. But Jesus communicates clearly that we have been loved by God. You may not feel all that loved by God, but that is a lie. Though in a way, I suppose, it's not all that far from a healthy place to be because the thimble of our lives can't possibly understand or fathom the vast depths of the oceanic love that God has for us. So actually, in thinking we're not loved by God, perhaps we're almost to the door of understanding that we can't understand how much love God has for us. Our problem isn't that God doesn't have love for us, though. It's that his love for us is too great for us to comprehend. Maybe we need to help our heads and our hearts understand it a little bit more this morning. So I would ask and invite you right now, to just close your eyes. Close your eyes. And turn off the part of your brain and your head that says, this is strange because you're right. 
Turn off the part of your brain and your soul that's saying, I disagree for a moment. And listen to what God's word tells us. We've already referenced Romans 5, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But hear what the psalmist says now, with focusing on this alone. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. The psalmist also writes, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. John will write that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, eyes up here. Eyes up here. Do you know God? Then forgiven and adopted into his family, hear this, God loves you. That is the primary manifestation of himself to you. God loves you. You. If you've not received him as your savior, know that as a rebel to God, yes, his wrath is still on you. But also know, so is his love towards you. God created and knows you. He's provided Jesus as a sufficient substitute for you to take the wrath you and I deserved and to give us his perfection instead. That is love. And you can know it. You can know it. By God's power and grace, you can see your sin and see and believe in Jesus, confessing him as your rescuer and leader. You could do it today. You could be known and know him for the first time today and experience more fully the reality of his love for you. Would you do that? I'm praying that you would. Because you matter, no matter who you are, you have been loved by God. Also, not only do we need to see that we've been loved by God, we need to see that the love we have for God is meant to be given. The love we have from God is meant to be given to others. That's what he calls us to do with the love we have from abiding in him and allowing the gospel to lead and drive all of who we are. This is the commandment of Jesus, as loved, love. This is maybe the primary fruit that the Spirit causes to grow, causes to produce, to demonstrate that we abide in Him as our Savior. And this exists in the church family. We are called to love each other. But please know that's not limited to the church family. In Christ, 
Love is what should define your interaction with your coworkers. Love is what should define your interaction with the upper management in your life. Love is what should define your interactions with your spouse. Love is what should define your interactions with your children or your siblings. Love is what should define your interaction with whoever posted that thought on the internet. You're still paying rent to in your head. Are you demonstrating consistent love for other people in your life? That's what God has called us to. There's so much that's already been said here, so maybe I should just skip to a piece of practical advice to work that out. Guys, we can't show love to others if we're not showing up among others. We can't show love to others if we're not showing up among others. That's how love is exchanged. That's how love is shown to worship gatherings as a priority over other competing interests, to small groups of men and women and people older and younger than you and different than you, to a team you're serving alongside, to a consistent crew you're showing love to. There's a reason at Bethel Church we value service and community because the one often happens within the other. You can't show love to people unless you're showing up among people. So, Man, how do I show up among people? I'm glad you asked. I'm here with a list. Guys, first, let's know and be known by others. Let's know and be known by others. In the two or three minutes following the conclusion of our services today, where I'm going to say, go in God's grace, you're sent, and then awkwardly not know how to get myself off the stage. In the two or three minutes following that moment, you have a choice every single Sunday, every single gathering. You can't escape or engage. There are fire escapes. Thankfully, none of us I have seen being so bold as to use them to get out of here. You can escape. And listen, some of us are wired that after an hour and 20 minutes or 30 minutes, if the preacher is being especially rude, Some of us are ready to be away from people. I get that. We can choose to escape or we can choose to engage. Find a way to engage. Step out of the crowd and into the family. Another way we can show up among others and obey Jesus to love them is to join a team. To join a team, to make a decision, to be counted on, and to have regular opportunities to show love. You might be sitting here thinking, man, I... How am I supposed to show love to others? And I'm telling you, it's real easy. Volunteer on a team. The definition then is going to become, here's what you do during your shift to show love to others. It's real simple to get involved. Last Sunday, I I had the opportunity, I loved it, to go back and teach to our kind of elementary age kids. And something I, I took the time to tell those kids, second graders, third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders, was that as they know Christ, many in that room are saved, they know him. I wanted them to hear me say this as their pastor. They didn't get a kid-sized portion of the Holy Spirit in them. And that they have my full permission, and I'm cheering and praying for them, that the greatest work God may do at Bethel Church may not start in this room. 
And maybe because they have a faith to see their God and to follow him empowered by the Spirit to do it. That is the truth. It may start there. Now, would you like to have a competition? I'm okay with us feeling called to follow God as well. But please know, as God calls and works and moves through them, not limited by their age or what they don't know yet, they will need durable disciple makers in their life called small group leaders to show them love and care and champion and encourage and support them as they grow. Join a team. That's a great way to obey Jesus, to show love. And then prioritize community, your small group, your DNA group, your Bible study, yes. And then leverage, perhaps even social medias, our Bethel Church Hobart Portage Facebook group, where you can see how you can drop off a meal or be praying for someone as those needs are shared. Showing love to others is what God commands us to do. And I know what you're thinking, like, bro, I have a life. That's a list. I think it's right there that we begin to realize what Jesus is asking. Lay it down. For a friend, for a stranger, for an enemy, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Greater love is no one than this, than he lay down his life. We can't show love to others if we aren't showing up among them. We love others because Jesus loves them. In fact, he called those he was going to die for here friends. He called what he was going to lay his life down for, the people he was going to lay his life down for, friends. Do we just skip over that? Like, should we do something about that fact? He presses in on the idea. This is the second half of the thoughts here today. And in verse 14, he says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. We saw that love for others describes what it means to be in the love of Jesus. Here we see that obedience to Jesus describes what it means to be in the friendship of Jesus. That obedience to Jesus is what describes what it means to be in the friendship of Jesus. Now listen, this does not look and feel like a usual friendship, does it? Would that work for you? Hey, let's be friends. Number one, awkward start. We can work on your approach game a little bit, all right? But hey, I want to be friends. First, you just do everything I ever tell you to do, and we're going to be besties. Yeah? What do, you, what do you say? That wouldn't work so well for us, would it? Does that sound fair? Listen, I agree. This isn't an even friendship. But no, that may not mean what we first expect it to mean. You are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command you. Now, we can mess up the way we read this real bad. 
Because if is a very general term in the English language, and we're lazy and sloppy as modern English speakers, and we allow word order to control almost all of how we understand what something says. But if can mean a couple different things here. Let's make sure we understand by allowing the rest of Scripture to interpret this phrase for us, what Jesus might be trying to communicate. Because if, as a clause, could mean, if could be interpreted as a cause that precedes and brings about an effect. If can mean, can stand for a cause that precedes and brings about an effect. Here's an example. If I plant an apple seed over at the orchard, an apple tree will grow. Here we have a cause. If I plant an apple seed, it precedes, it's the first thing I do, and it brings about an effect. An apple tree will grow, right? So if we utilize this way of interpreting the word if, this is what Jesus' words would mean. If you do what I command you, that is an effect of the reality that you are a friend to me. Sorry, if you do what I command you, that will cause you to become a friend to me. A cause that proceeds and brings about. Now that is heresy. It is not true. Our obedience does not gain us anything before the Lord. Our obedience is filthy rags. We are not able, without faith, to do anything that is righteous, that merits God's friendship. All of the rest of Scripture makes that clear. So is Jesus being a heretic? I would submit to you that he is not. How could he not be a heretic? Let's look at another way that if can be used, right? If as an effect that follows and confirms a cause. If can be an effect that follows after and confirms a cause. Here's another example brought to you from reality and recent history. If I'm eating cookies, the Girl Scouts just made money, right? If I'm eating cookies, the Girl Scouts just made money. That is an effect I'm eating cookies, if I'm eating cookies, that follows something that's already happened. It's confirming a cause. The Girl Scouts made some money. They sold me some cookies. And what a ripoff. Five bucks for that box? It's gone in a serving. Happy to do it. If we use this way of looking at if, this is what Jesus is saying. If you do what I command you, in effect... That is an effect of the reality that you are a friend to me. It's following, it's confirming. That is what he's communicating. If you do what I command you, that is an effect of the reality that you are a friend to me. Obedience to Jesus is something Christians must do. But it follows, it confirms the reality that we are friends of Jesus because he has already become our Savior. Because apart from anything we did, he awoke faith in us and called us to trust in him. We aren't friends because we obey. We obey because we're friends. Obedience is the effect of new life in Christ. Abiding in his love and truth as the gospel continually shapes who we are, we then obey him. If you're my friends, you do what I command you. And then he says, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Because you have heard from my father. 
For all I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The distinction between friends and servants. The distinction here, friends and servants, that Jesus is making is not obeying versus not obeying. Because like servants, his friends still obey him. The distinction is instead, Jesus says, knowing versus not knowing. Knowing versus not knowing. I think about this. If a king told some servants of his, go bring up the car. Go pull up the car. We would expect in all the stories and fairy tales we've heard about kings, that the servants would just go and pull up the car. There's no conversation. The king tells the servants what to do and they do it. But if... uh, In another scenario, the king was in a room filled with his closest friends. And he said to one of his friends, hey, go grab the car. It would make sense to us. We would not be surprised to learn that the king says, because we're about to go do something awesome. Let me tell you what we're going to do. Go get the car, because we are about to do something. And Jesus says, like that, the distinction in my relationship with you as you obey me is that I have made known to you what I'm about, and what I'm doing. As friends of Jesus, we know the truth of the gospel specifically and the truth of Scripture generally. Right? Jesus says, all that I've heard from my Father. And the gospel was the purpose of the Father before time. God shared this plan and led Jesus through his ministry and to the death and to resurrection. All that I've heard from the Father... I've made known to you. Jesus revealed through his teachings and conversations in this upper room moment. What he revealed was the gospel and plan of redemption. Specifically, knowing Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. That's what provides the opportunity for enemies of God to become friends of God. And by affirming the Old Testament scripture in his ministry. And by sending the spirit to teach all things and bring to mind all that I've said. Jesus reveals the rest of the Bible. Jesus, and through him the Father, desired his followers to know what he was doing and the way to be right with the Father and to know Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. And don't get me wrong, we can't know everything about God. We're not his equal. But in the most important areas of life, when it comes to the character, the trustworthiness of God, the way we can be right with him and how to live until he returns and calls us home, we can be sure that he has made known to us exactly what we need to know in order to obey him. So much so that he says, I call you my friend. I call you my friend. This is a glorious friendship. This is a glorious friendship. Given this knowledge as God's friends, we're empowered to love others. This is what empowers us to love others in confidence. Think about this. Instead of revenge in relationship, we can trust the revealed knowledge of God that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and then lay down our lives in love. Because instead of returning a hurtful comment, we can trust the revealed knowledge to not repay reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, and then lay down our lives in love. Instead of needing to impress the people around us, we can trust the revealed knowledge of God 
that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, and then be empowered to lay down our lives in love. At every turn, at every moment to obey, we're treated as friends. In asking us to love others, Jesus made known to us the way to have a life in him that overflows in love. Let's close by looking at the full picture of this passage. We have an uneven friendship with God. We have an uneven friendship. Jesus provides all the love. As I have loved you, love others. Jesus provides his life for us, laying down his life. God the Father designed redemption. And Jesus provides all the knowledge of that redemption. And then receiving this, now alive, now free, empowered and adopted and aware and made into a people and destined for glory, we obey him. Does it feel so unfair that this friendship requires obedience? That it results in obedience in our life? Knowing all that he's done? Knowing that this obedience is the way to true life and joyful life and fulfilled life and intimacy with him? As friends of Jesus, we delight in the most gloriously uneven friendship with him. So we obey him. And we love others. So we obey. And so we love. Can you imagine what it would look like for God's people to act like they were friends of God? They were obeying him through love because they have the best, most uneven friendship stacked in their favor with him? Jesus would say here... Two verses, verse 17, or another summary statement. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So that you will love one another. And then, the next afternoon, he's crucified. Then, the resurrection then the Spirit comes, and the church is born. And you know what they did? They loved one another. They loved one another. Jesus said they would love one another. And by that love, the world knew they were disciples of Jesus, and still does today. Sure, they were ordinary Unprepared, unfunded, they spoke multi-languages, they were multi-ethnic, and yet with all these differences, they were singing one song. Love for the one who is calling them friend, and then love for all others in obedience to him. That song has grown louder and louder through the centuries. And this gospel-made church must and can join that song. Obeying him and loving others. As we do, 
since we are, it's sounding an awful lot like heaven. 